Today's reading will be from the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 3 through 8. We'll be reading out of the New International Version. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Good morning, friends. What a great morning to highlight the word of God. Um, the value it is in our lives from youngest age to the day we go into the, God's presence. Um, this morning, our text comes right out of the books of Exodus, and we're going to be talking about covenant law. Law, things that shape us, as Mark just prayed for Clara and for all of us, that shape us to be what God wants us to be. So I I was thinking about that this week as I prepared this sermon, thinking about when I was younger and some of the rules that shaped my life. When I was a young, we, uh, we always had to share rooms. I came from a big family. So my sister Judy and I shared rooms all those. I had one year that I had a room by myself. But Judy and I, we had, we got along well, but we had very different temperaments. She is a creative type. She likes projects. I like to have things neat and tidy which may be surprised to some of you if you look at my desk, but really I liked that. That was the way I liked to function. And so we had to establish some rules, some guidelines, so that when we shared our room together, it would there'd be enough harmony and peace. So here were some of our rules. The last one in bed turns out the light. Okay, that seems really weird, but we didn't have bedside lamps, you know. So you'd crawl in bed. You didn't want to get out to turn off the light after you'd read your book. So the last one in bed was the one that had to get up and turn off the light. Another one, this was a key one, no borrowing each other's clothes without prior permission. I mean, if worst case, you had to write them a note and get it signed, you know. That was important. You couldn't just take things out of the other's closet or drawers. And then one of them was we don't leave any food items in our room. I mean, you can eat in your room, but don't leave them there. And I think that was because, you know, little critters, and we both hate mice. So that was a rule we could easily adhere to. And those sibling rules, they kept us close as sisters, and they kept our arguments at a minimum. And really, they were part of a bigger guidelines that were part of our family. You probably grew up with family rules as well. Ours were Saturday chores, Weekly dinner duties, certain words off limit in your house. I mean, did you grow up with that? That is not a word we say in this house, right? Everyone was expected to be at the table when mom called for dinner, and Sundays were days of worship and rest. These were all rules. They they helped us support each other. They helped us shape our identity of who we were as a family. And whether we're talking about shaping a family or shaping a nation, as we talked about with Israel, these kinds of guidelines are what are so vital for us as we move forward. You know, the best set of rules come out of a place of love, out of a place of concern for the whole group. 
It's why parents set curfews, right? It's why governments enforce laws. Because we are concerned about the goodness and the well-being of everyone. And when a family lives into those guidelines, when a group of people live into those guidelines, they demonstrate this is what I value. This is what we value. So in our series on the wilderness journey, we've been talking about this, how God shaped his people from Egypt unto the promised land. And the book of Exodus has been our text. We've been walking through different portions of it. We've seen in the past weeks all the challenges that have been before the people. Uh, Maybe not challenges similar to yours, but definitely challenges we all face in life. Challenges that the Israelites faced. The Egyptians pursuing them, right? The sea that wasn't passable until God did a mighty work. Lack of bread, lack of water. All of these challenges that God showed up and showed himself faithful in. God demonstrated that he's deliverer. He is presence. He is provision all through the journey. And now here in Exodus 19, we come to a pivotal part. In fact, many theologians say this chapter in the book of Exodus changes the whole course of what is going on for the rest of Exodus and really well into the Old Testament. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you, whether they're in print or um, really this kind of copy, Open them up again, whether you're at home or here in person with us. Let's demonstrate that we really do value God's word by looking at it together. Exodus chapter 19. This happens exactly three months after Israel had left Egypt. And they arrive here at the mountain of God. And as we look at this passage out of Exodus 19, particularly the verses you see there on the screen, we're going to see how it redefines and resets for the people what it means to be God's unique people, what the Exodus story is all about. And I want to share it to you in terms of this way. Covenant law, covenant guidelines come out of a place of, come expressed through place, through promise, and through purpose. First of all, place. What was read for us this morning, um, what Jason read, it started in verse 3, but if you go back just a verse in verse 2, it says where they were. Remember, three months after they left Egypt, they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. I don't know if you've ever done desert camping, but um, this was a big group of desert camping, and there they were, at the place at the foot of a mountain, which was a new place for the people of Israel, but not a new place for Moses. You may remember Moses had been here before. This is a return for Moses because way back when God had called Moses to himself, it happened right there at the place of Mount Sinai. It's a return for him. That first call for Moses came there. Now this call is going to come to him. In that same place. Familiar sights for Moses. And maybe he heard again these words that God had spoken to him way back when he was just an exile shepherd. And God had called to him in front of Mount Sinai out of a bush and said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. 
When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. This place was important. And it may be for Moses, it seemed like a lifetime ago that he'd first heard this call. But the place brought back these memories and this certainty of God's promise. Because what God had said he'd do with Moses, he did. He brought the people out. And think of it, Moses standing there on that ground, gazing at that mountain. And I can only imagine that his faith must have been just soaring. Like God did what he said he was going to do. And I'm back in the same place. Now, Mount Sinai is not necessarily spectacular on its own. There really is a Mount Sinai. This is one of the pictures found of it. It's not as natural landscape that makes it spectacular. It's not like Mount Rainier, right? We've got great spectacular mountains. What made Mount Sinai spectacular was that God showed up there in visible and in powerful ways. It was like this was a place where God was going to show all of his majesty, all of his glory, all of his power. And that happened right there in this pivotal time when Israel was camped in front of this mountain. If you read the rest of the uh, chapter there in Exodus 19, you'd read about the dramatic things that happened, the things they saw and heard. God showed up. And when God showed up here, even more dramatic perhaps than the crossing of the Red Sea, we have thick clouds, smoke, lightning, thunder, a trumpet blast. I mean, there is noise and there is there are sights that the people of Israel had never seen before. They weren't just going to listen to Moses' word and think, well, Moses is telling us. No, no, no. It became very evident that whatever was coming from the mountain through Moses was really coming from heaven itself. And he, God was saying, I am committed to you, this people. I am going to develop a people who are destined by God himself. So the sights and sounds of place were really vital. And when, Mo, when God begins to talk to Moses, he calls him up to the mountain. I, I, if you catch that there in verse um, 3, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This time not from a burning bush, but from a mountain. And I think this time, rather than the hesitancy he showed before, I wonder if Moses ran. I said, I- I'm going. I know this is God that's going to speak. And out of that place, God begins to talk of his promises, promises fulfilled. And this is the second part of covenant law. Because when God reviews his promises, it gives the groundwork for what he's going to ask of them. And if you look at the verses there, verse 4 especially, these are very personal words. It's not like, I'm going to, or this is going to happen to you. God says, I, I will do this. I will do this for you. What does he remind them of? What he did for them? Well, he says, I took care of your Egyptian oppressors, right? I brought you out of Egypt. I I got rid of that army that was trying to attack you. I carried you on eagle's wings. I carried you like a powerful, swift-moving bird. You were on my wings, and you were... You were cared for. You were secure in that place. There's also a picture, you can see it in other parts of scripture, where the the picture of the winged bird is like a 
a parent nurturing and caring for a young, younger bird. God had provided for their needs. God had helped them to soar like eagles. God did that. And then it says, and this is not a passage you hear anywhere else really in the scripture. It says, I brought you to myself. I love those words. I brought you to me. I brought you to myself. God had not just provided what they needed to live, but he's saying, I did the work to bring you to me. I want you to know me and my ways. Yeah, Israel had cried out to God in Egypt, right? They had been miserable and cried out to God. But God says, I'm the one that brought you to myself. And now they hear, are hear, hearing these promises of God again and saying, I'm ready. God is a God of promise. He's fulfilled. He's done what he said he would do. I don't know about for you how place and promise intersect in your faith journey. You may not be walking through a desert right now, but there are times where God shows up in a place that is very significant, shows up in powerful ways, and it becomes a place you sometimes go back to because you met God there, and you want to hear from him again. It's often in those significant places where we're called to pause, to camp, in a sense, as the Israelites did, Stay there and wait to hear from God again. Place is important. Place is important for Israel. Place is important for us. And I don't know all of your stories, but I can think of places in the trajectory of my own life that were key. At a camp. In a church service. A certain room in a home. Maybe for you, it's somewhere out in the sanctuary of nature where you heard God. Or receive something from God that was powerful. God's grandeur showed up. Place and promise come together to remind us we are God's. And he has things to say to us even today. One of the reasons we um, invite people to come and walk on this campus is because place and promise are important. No, we don't believe God is only contained on this campus or in this sanctuary. All of you who are gathered with us online, God is present. But there is something unique about the place God has planted us. And so each month on the fourth Thursday, we walk around this campus. Because place is important. And we need to remember together the promises of God and ask him to continue to show up in the way he always has. So you see a picture of one of our Thursday prayer walks. And each time we go around the campus, we take a rock and we have a little pile down there. I encourage you to kind of walk around and see if you can find where it is. It's still there. Because we are marking together that God's promise is sure. And he shows up in real places. And we believe when we pray, he will show up here and move through us as well. This is the word of God. And so this, out of this place and promise, God begins to say clearly to Israel what his purpose is for them. You know, before God ever gave the law... He 
brought these people to himself. So you have to remember this. The status of these people as God's own wasn't because they were keeping laws or offering sacrifices. They didn't have that yet. They had the Passover. They'd kept that promise, that that guideline. But this was God initiating, giving them a purpose out of his graciousness, out of his care for those people. And this is where they're going to be shaped as a people. What's their identity? What is their purpose going forward? And God is saying, it's because I care for you and I know you and I've drawn you to myself that I want to tell you how life looks like in my way. Their purpose, their identity, shaped by God's covenant laws. And you can see it there in verses 5 and 6, what he says. What God says to Moses and then Moses repeats to the people. What purpose did God call them to? What was their identity? He says, first of all, he says, you're a treasured possession. That doesn't mean they're more treasured than other nations. It just means that God is putting his gaze on this people in order to, and here's the purpose, in order to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If we look there in, in, in my translation at the middle of verse 5, it says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A better way of saying that, because the whole earth is mine. God cares about the whole earth. Because the whole earth is mine, I'm going to call you to a special purpose, a special um, role as a kingdom of priests we can think about this if you know anything about the old testament think about the promise that came to abraham when god called him and he said i'm going to bless you i'm going to increase your um, children you're going to have a huge uh, group of people following you and i'm going to bless you so that you will be what a blessing Right. That was the call all along. The blessing for Abraham wasn't just for him. The call and purpose and blessing for Israel was not for them. Just for them. It was so that they would be a blessing to the other nations. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. A nation that's set aside. That's what holy means. Set apart for a special purpose. They were a holy nation set apart to show God's ways to the rest of the world. Now, you may think of priests, um, you know, depending on what faith tradition you grew up in, or even today, many um, denominations have priests that they wear beautiful robes and um, stately sashes, and the Pope, you know, who has the beautiful, uh, I don't even know what they call it, but it is what? Mitre. Mitre. There you go. I called it a hat, but it's mitre. But anyway, there are, there are symbols of priesthood that we're kind of familiar with, and those are true priestly roles because priests are called to mediate between God and humans. A priest is one who represents God to the people and then represents the people to God. So priests are important. And if we read through the rest of Exodus, we're going to find that God called priests, special people to be priests for Israel as well. But here he's saying, not only those are going to be priests, but you are going to be a kingdom of priests you and i who are called to follow jesus are part of this kingdom of priests who show god to the rest of the world this is what israel was called to they would be this conduit of god's word of god's life to show people this is what god is like this is how he wants you to live this is what he intends for you to be blessed 
Israel's mission was to win the nations to God. To demonstrate what God values. To live that identity as an invitation for others to know God as well. That was the purpose of the law. And so when we think of covenant law, we have to think of it in terms of our goal to live our lives out for others. Those three things, place, promise, purpose. They lay the foundation for what we know as of the Ten Commandments. That's found in Exodus 20 of your Bible, the next chapter from what we've looked at today. And really, from Exodus 20 all the way through the rest of Exodus, into the book of Leviticus, halfway through the book of Numbers, all kinds of community laws and guidelines for the good of the people and the blessing of the nations. Not just for them, but a way to show that God's laws are good and they're meant for your well-being. That covenant law preserved the people. It equipped the people for their mission in the world. And you and I, too, can't live out our purpose as a kingdom of priests who show other people, other communities, our neighbors, our friends, what it means to value and live in God's way. We can't do that without knowing what God says. So when we talk about God's word, yes, we talk about this, but it's everything he's had to tell us about the way life goes and how we should live it in order to flourish. And so these terms, covenant and law, they come together. You know, we have the term covenant in our church name. What is a covenant? Anybody know the meaning of it? Covenant just means an agreement between two parties. It's a reciprocal agreement. A covenant is a, a holy commitment. And what God has said to these people in the first part of Exodus 19 is, this is my covenant to you. I am going to take you on eagle's wings. I am going to protect you. I am going to bring you to myself. I give you a purpose. But what is the side of the people? What's the reciprocal side for the people? He says it in verse 5. God says it first. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant. That was what was being offered to them as this kingdom of priests. To say God wants you to live into those guidelines that are for your best. And it is a matter of trust, isn't it? When we look at God's word and say his His ways are best. Better than I can understand. And so the people, this is the interesting part. Because next week we'll see that as much as their intent was to do this. They replied to this call for the covenant. Verse 8, they said, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will do everything the Lord has said. And we smile because we know we might have said those same words and we aren't always able to live into them. But this is a word of intent. And you can think of it almost as like the I do in a marriage service where there is two people making a covenant together to declare their intentions to walk in that way. And I don't know about you if you're married, but there aren't, we don't always keep to that covenant of I do, honor, respect, love, cherish, whatever. We don't always do that. But God in this, if you think of it in that kind of a, 
commitment of love that God has for his people. And then we respond in love to him by saying, yes, I will do everything you said because you love me. You care about me. I am going to live into that. So these promises for them, God's promises, they don't free them from obligation. They're saying, I am going to do what you ask us to do. But here's the key that we have to remember. It isn't the law itself that fulfilled their relationship or that set the relationship with God. It was not the source of their relationship. If I keep the law, then I can be with God. Remember, God drove them to himself before the law was even given. No, salvation, deliverance is God's gracious gift in advance prior to God's law. He takes the initiative. We respond. And that's important to know when we talk about covenant law or look at the commandments or any of this, that it's not a way, it's not a way to be saved. We're not saved by keeping the law. But it's when we keep the law, it's an evidence that we have been saved. And that is the way it was for Israel. God had delivered them and saved them. And they kept the law as evidence of their freedom, of their deliverance. But freedom without identity or calling, that's no freedom at all. So the calling for them was to abide by the guidelines he'd given. And he makes it specific. Many of you may memorize the Ten Commandments. That is a great place to start. So it really are, they really are a synopsis of all the truths of what it means to walk in God's ways. And if you look at them in chapter 20, the first four talk about our relationship with God, and there are a lot of words there to describe that, what God calls for this un, un, unequivocal commitment to him above all things. And then the other six talk about our relationships with each other, what we should and should not do in order to honor God's ways. A lot of theologians call them the ten words, the ten commandments, where God speaks because he wants us to know his way. And as we consider these laws, like I said, I'm not going to go through them specifically today, but as you think about the ten commandments, the laws of God, the guidelines that God's given us, I want you to ask a question, and I'll ask myself too. How does this shape your view of the lawgiver? If God meets us in places of significance and he reminds us of his promises and then he says, I have a purpose for you, how do you view this God? This God who showed up on Mount Sinai with thunder and smoke and lightning. This God who shows up in Jesus in humility and service and wonder. I thought of that this week and I... I've confessed this before in one of the groups I've been in, but I, re, I would just say there are many times, especially when talking and thinking about God's law, when I have an image of God with a clipboard. On the clipboard are all the guidelines, you know, that he said. And, of course, I've agreed to them by saying I'm going to follow him. Um, but God's over there, and he's got his clipboard and a pen, and he's he's watching me from afar, and... Oh, yeah, okay, that one. Nope, not so good. And he's checking things off. Okay, honestly, I I know this sounds silly, but this is sometimes the way we view the God of the law. And the Ten Commandments, God's laws, are not intended for us to have this to-do list so God can check up on us from afar, so that God can look from heaven and say, "Uh, they're doing okay today, but uh, no, 
I'm, I'm going to go back to my check, uh, my clipboard and put some notes about how that happened and how they messed up there. No. This is not the God of covenant law. The God of covenant law is not holding a clipboard, but holding out hands that have been pierced for us and saying, I draw you to myself, and because I gave my life for you, you can step into following me in freedom and joy. It's the God who carried Israel on his wings. It's the God who delivers, who protects, who draws us to ourselves. And so when he speaks and gives law, we say, gift. I want to live into this gift because God cares about me. God of all creation, God of all nations, God whose words and law have formed the galaxies and now whose words form this people. He's saying, I have a commitment I want you to live into. These are... This way of living, it mirrors my character. So when you follow it, you're showing the character of God to those around you. God wants us to be this kingdom of priests who demonstrate to the world that he's good, that he loves us, that he is for us in our well-being. And that then is extended to all peoples, all nations on the earth. This is the God of promise my friends, the God of promise that's here for you. And so when he gives his law in a thundering, powerful way, we respond in awe. And hopefully, as the Israelites do, and say, I will do all that you ask me to do. And God, even there, smiles, recognizing we can't always live into that obedience. How do we express our obedience to this word of God? How do we express this worship? In just a moment, we're going to sing a song together. And I, th- I want you to just capture some of the words of this song. Because it talks about the God who speaks. The God who speaks in powerful ways. And that we see the heart of God in everything he says. We see the heart of God in what he's created. We see the heart of God in what he's spoken. And we see the heart of God in his covenant law. And this is some of the words from this song. God of your promise, you don't speak in vain. No syllable empty or void. For once you have spoken, all nature and science follow the sound of your voice. And then it says, if creation still obeys you, so will I. If the galaxies obey you, so will I. If your covenant law is for my good, I will obey. So will I. I invite you to pray with me before we sing this song together. Holy God, remind us of the power of your word. Your word which birthed the universe. Your word which called out a people, Israel. Your word which touched each one of us at some point and called us to yourself. We thank you that your word is not empty or void. Not one syllable is wasted. You want us to know your way and to be able to say, then so will I, God. So will I obey. So will I heed what you've called us to do. And in that way, enter this beautiful covenant relationship where law is gift. 
We pray this would be our hearts as we follow you into this week, into the month ahead. So will we, Lord. So will we. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.